Hello and welcome to Happy Place with me, Fern Cotton. Today I'm meeting someone who has been at the top of my dream list of guests since Happy Place began many years ago. I am beyond excited to be chatting to Brené Brown. The thing to understand is that the opposite of perfectionism is healthy striving or striving for excellence. So for people who are successful at striving for excellence, perfectionism is not the path, it's the greatest barrier. So what perfectionism is, is actually one of our most dangerous defense mechanisms against shame, judgment, belittlement, failure. Brené is a research professor at the University of Houston and has spent the last two decades studying courage, vulnerability, shame and empathy. I'm sure you've probably read at least one of her five New York Times bestselling books and you'll definitely have struggled to be a person on the internet without coming across her phenomenal TEDx talk, The Power of Vulnerability. It's had over 50 million views. 50 million! The mind boggles. Prepare your mind to be blown further during this chat because we've got into some really interesting stuff about focusing on our interior world rather than taking cues from the exterior world all the time and why perfectionism is actually an unhelpful defence mechanism. I'm just going to also add, okay, as a disclaimer, that for the first five minutes of this conversation, I am like well excited. I talk too much. I talk too quickly. I'm trying to get every thought I've ever had about Brené Brown out into the open. That's just a warning. And then you will feel that naturally about 15 minutes in, I just get into a little rhythm and I feel more at peace with myself and my life and I talk less and a bit more slowly. So sorry about my excitement. I was well excited. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Right, I cannot wait for you to hear this. This is the show. Hey, Brené Brown. Hi, Fern. How are you? Oh, I I don't know how to express how I am because let me tell you this, Brené, when I started doing this podcast near enough to four years ago, I wrote a dream list of guests and you were at the top. Oh, my God. We're here. We're doing so it. So now, now what do I do, though? I'll just give up. I'll stop. I'll stop after this. Oh, please. You better not. Oh, I won't. I won't. But I am, I'm deeply thrilled. So thank you so, so much for coming on. Um, are you well today? Are you happy? You know, I, I, I am well and happy. And, and that's not every day right now. So I, I will take it. I'm well and happy. Excited to be with you. Good. I'm so glad. And thank you from the bottom of my heart for writing all of your beautiful books. I've read them all over the years and very recently got a copy of Atlas of the Heart, which I loved reading as well. And this book is a, a map 
for us to navigate life, which we, we need we need more maps. We need so many maps because I think more than ever, we all feel a bit lost. And I wonder why you think that is. Mm. Well, I can't speak for how it is there, but here, I mean, I think it's close to the same. It's just been a shit show for the last 18 yeah. months. I mean, it's been really, in many ways, disastrous. I mean, we have had so much death, so much loss, so much disruption. It's been tumultuous. It's been confusing and scary and hard with the pandemic. I think it's it's interesting because I think we feel untethered. And I think we're looking externally for kind of that port in the storm without understanding that what will tether us and keep us from feeling adrift is inside of us, not external to us. Mm. The port is inside. The harbour is in here. And you're so right, because I found myself sort of grappling with that and looking for this sort of, you know, life raft somewhere. You know, I've been very lucky. I've managed to keep working throughout. Many of my friends have not had the same sort of set up, but still just the, the the feeling of uncertainty and the feeling of fear and wanting to look for that that place of safety. And, you know, very much like, you know, that's what your whole book is about, is is looking at the inside world rather than mm. us always looking at the exterior world the whole time. And I mean again, deeply fascinating to read. And I'm such a huge fan of yours like many people are, because you have that wonderful combination of combining data and your work as a research professor with your own real life anecdotes and experiences to sort of back up. Okay, this is what maybe the data or the science says, but this is how I feel. And it's such a potent combination that has just helped so many people and best seen in your TED Talk, which is one of the most viewed TED Talks out there. I've probably watched it about 50 times myself because so many of us have dealt with shame. And I certainly lost quite a few years of my life to shame and feeling like I was really drowning in it. And I wonder if the conversation is even more relevant today because cancel culture Mm. exists. And I, I really struggle with this one because, you know, a lot of the work that I do is I want to to help people feel less alone and, you know, shame certainly isolates you and ostracises you. But how can we expect ourselves or others to eradicate shame from our lives knowing that cancel culture exists? God, I feel like I want to look behind me to see if someone back there has the answer. Like, I just, I mean... This is this is my new this is my new theory. I've been really thinking about this over the last six months a lot. I think we're so shit at holding people accountable that all that we turn to canceling and shaming and vitriol and name calling because we either don't know how or we're not willing to do the really rigorous, vulnerable work of holding people accountable. Like we don't know how to do that. And so what we do instead of saying, when you engage in this behavior or when you said this or when you took this action, it hurt me or it hurt other people and I'm going to hold you accountable for that. We just blast them. And so there's no learning there's, I mean, it's it's incredible. The absence of accountability is so overwhelming, but it's so pervasive. It's like asking a fish to describe water. Mm-hmm. Like we really can't even 
we don't even understand it. So what we do is we just get rid of people. Is that because we're doing it to ourselves? But we're not holding ourselves accountable for things with responsibility. We're, we're, we're shaming ourselves daily. Yes. So therefore, it's so easy to do it to other people. I, I think that's a really important insight because I think, look, when I, I'll give you an example. This is a real example. So I have probably maybe 10 or 11 million people that follow across all my social media channels. It's a lot. And I wrote a post, I don't know, maybe nine, 10 months ago. Oh, I can tell you exactly when it was. It was a year ago because it was the first podcast I recorded with the the Duplass brothers, Jay and Mark Duplass. And I said something about Mark Duplass being my spirit animal. And within seconds on social, I had just this massive kind of, God, Brene, you can't say that. That's really hurtful. You know, I don't think you, you must not, everything from you must not know that that's really terrible appropriation of indigenous people to you fucking asshole I'm not following you anymore like I mean for every it's from in death threats like that always you know when you have that many people it, it's the range of sanity yeah and I remember my team coming to me and saying we'll pull down the post we'll pull down the posts and I said no we're not going to pull down the post we're going to address it so I just got on and said I'm going to edit this post in the comments I apologize to the people that this hurt. I did not understand that or know that, but I know better now, so I'll do better now. Thank you for teaching me. And for those of you impacted by this, regardless of my intention, I apologize. And you don't see people, what you normally see is when people do that and they get people, you know, they get called out for it. They either go into deep shame and and what shame looks like on the outside is justifying, rationalizing, blaming or shutting down, but they don't lean in. Mm. Do you you know what I'm saying? Well, I do because I I can only relate to what I've been through myself. But when I was in a big patch of shame, my option was shut down. I just closed off, shut down. But I think the only way I've been able to move through it and um, not carry that bag of shit around with me anymore is to to face it and to not pretend that the stuff didn't happen that I don't want to think about and to look at what I might have been accountable for versus the stuff that people just projected onto me right and again it goes back to you know understanding I guess accountability and also you know the thing that you're an expert in which is looking at vulnerability and apologizing or even if it's not public but it's just to yourself um apologizing for the harm you might have even done to yourself I think that all of those feelings it's so uncomfortably exposing um but essential I think if if we're to move through this stuff and not just lug it around forever because we can we can pull that stuff into you know to the future, decades and decades ahead, we'll still be carrying around that shame unless, I guess, we do face the monster that we've shut away somewhere. I mean, yeah, it, it was, you know, I started as a shame researcher 20-something years, 21 years ago, I guess. And I first started studying just women in shame. And I remember interviewing people, you know, in their 50s, 60s, that their whole lives were defined by it. I mean, really defined by it. And for those of you listening, thinking, okay, what is, what is she talking about with shame? I'm talking about this deeply painful experience of believing 
that we're flawed and somehow unworthy of love and belonging and connection, that something we've done or failed to do makes us unworthy. And it's very different than guilt. Guilt is, I did something bad, and shame is, I am bad. And we know from, you know, now probably going on 60, 70 years of research that guilt is helpful. Guilt is when I hold a behavior up against who I want to be and my values and there's cognitive dissonance. It creates a psychological discomfort and we're like, shit, that is not who I want to be as a daughter, as a partner, as, you know, a professor, a leader. And I need to, I need to bring things into alignment. Shame is a whole different thing. Shame is I'm not enough. And I absolutely believe people lead entire lifetimes defined by it. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And you say in the book, you know, the antidote to it is empathy, which um, we can all see how that plays out beautifully with human connection and somebody saying, I see you, I hear you, or I've had the same situation happen to me. You know, I was very lucky that I was on the receiving end of that sort of empathy. But I wonder if you have to have perhaps a small side dish of self-worth in there for you to reach out in the first place because mm-hmm. it does require you to be even more vulnerable because you have to then tell someone what you're feeling shameful about. I think the good news is I think what you need is probably self-compassion. Yeah. I think you need to give yourself permission to be human, to be both kind and cruel, to be, you know, to get it right and to really fuck it up sometimes, to be connected, to be lonely. Just you have to, I think it's self-compassion that I love, you know, when I think about self-compassion, I always think about talk to myself like I would talk to someone I love. And when I hold up how I talk to myself when I screw something up versus how I talk to my children, it's just, it's night and day. You know, if I... If my kids make a mistake, I'll first say, you know what? It's okay. You're human. Making mistakes is a part of this is part. This is a part of who we are. Yeah. You know, when I make a mistake personally, I think to myself, God, you idiot. Mm-hmm. God, you're so stupid. And I would never, ever talk to my kids that way. Do you think it's getting worse because the notion of perfectionism is ubiquitous? You know, now more than ever, it's and we can see we can't see it, but we think we can see it on social media. This weird elusive perfection that we'll never quite reach and therefore self-compassion is sort of dwindling because we we think we're missing the mark constantly because there's this amazing perfection that we'll never quite get to it's really interesting that you brought up perfectionism at this point in our conversation because what people don't understand is that where perfectionism drives us shame is there so perfectionism is a function of shame yeah you know, it's really funny. Oh, it's such a painful lesson to learn. Like, I'm I'm processing it as you're saying it, going, of course, this is why I keep fucking up. <laughs> no, I mean, it, 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 so it was really funny. A million years ago when I, when I thought it was just me first came out, I did like a, I had a little microphone on my kitchen table at home and I did a little read-along. And 
someone emailed and said, oh man, I know this book is on, on perfection in women. I mean, on shame in women. Uh, my friends and I don't really do shame, but we have a lot of perfectionism. If you ever decide to do anything on perfectionism, will you send an email blast out? And then there was like a five line signature, like her name, her title, her company. But then under the signature, there was a little PS that said, the two are not related, are they? <laughs> yeah. And so I wrote back. And, and the I bad said, news is. <laughs> yes. And the bad news is. Yes. Because let me, let, let's break down perfectionism because it's so yeah. helpful to understand it. So the thing to understand is that in the research, in data, and in, in by social psychologists and neurologists and neurobiology people, the opposite of perfectionism is healthy striving or striving for excellence. So for people who are successful at striving for excellence, perfectionism is not the path, it's the greatest barrier. So what perfectionism is, is actually one of our most dangerous defense mechanisms. Perfectionism says to us, hey, Fern, if you look perfect, work perfect, and do it all perfectly, I can help you avoid ever feeling judgment, blame, criticism, or failure. You just need to do it all perfectly. I'm right here. We can do that. So what it is, it's a defense mechanism against shame, judgment, belittlement, failure. So we try to do it, and inevitably we fail because perfection doesn't exist. But for those of us, and it's really a, it's really a process addiction, because for those of us, myself included, who struggle with perfectionism, when we make a mistake or when we inevitably, regardless of how well we do something, feel shame, criticism, blame, we don't say to ourselves, man, this shit does not work. I'm not doing this. We say, I wasn't quite perfect enough. Yeah. What a horrible little vicious circle. What Vicious, yeah. So then we double down. So I call perfectionism the 20-ton shield. We think we carry it around to keep us from being hurt. But what it actually does is it keeps us from being seen. And it is so addictive. Yeah. This um, plays in beautifully to how you start the book in the opening section by saying you have been aware from a very young age that when you were observing dynamics happening around you in your own family or otherwise, you could clearly see that people would do anything to avoid pain, which fits into all the things you've just described perfection is attempting to shield us from. Yes. And, and, And that will lead to us then perhaps causing someone else pain maybe shutting down and hiding. There'll be many different manifestations, but all of them will inevitably cause more pain. And we kind of know that, but we also sort of ignore it. (laughs) When I was thinking about this and reading it, I was like, okay, yeah, none of us like sitting in pain. I don't want to feel pain. I don't want to sit in it. But most of, like, whether that's mental or physical, most of us will survive it. And I know not everybody does, but most of us in everyday painful situations, we'll survive it, we'll see it through. So what is... Is there a fear beneath that? What is the the base fear that's stopping us from sitting in pain or being in pain? I can't handle it. I, I can't. It, and it's anticipatory anxiety. Right. It's the anticipation. It's the culture that says, if you, this gets very much into your work, you should feel ashamed for feeling anything but happy. Yeah. Where what you tell us is 
you got to sit through some hard stuff. Happiness is not happiness is not the goal. The goal is to be real, be in whatever is, lean into it, and then happiness is often the product of that work. Yeah, I I loved reading your section on happiness because yeah, obviously this podcast is called Happy Place. I'm um fascinated by happiness. I also had a huge period of my life where I was very, very unhappy, which was the catalyst for all of this, quite frankly. And it's something that I think, you know, culturally we're obsessed with. And it sort of plays into every part of life and how we imbibe information and advertising and all sorts of things. But we still seemingly get it so wrong. Is that because we're we're waiting for these big firework moments that have almost mm-hmm. been sort of promoted to us and we're missing the little tiny nuanced bits of happiness or nuanced bits of life, I guess, that create happiness? Yeah, I think we're so busy chasing down extraordinary moments. Yes. That we miss all of the happiness and joy that's contained in ordinary moments. And I think I was one of those people too. I think I used to have, especially maybe in my 30s, a real fear of a small life. And it's interesting because... I, in the interviewing I've done as a researcher, I've done interviews and focus groups with people who have, God, they've just survived, you know, genocide, a focus group of parents of kids who were killed or young adults who were killed in 9-11, kids who have died of cancer, Um, really hard, people who have survived very hard things. And I remember in those interviews, no one talked about the grief of missing what they believed would be the big extraordinary moments that are not going to happen now. What people said to me was, they were things like, God, I missed the sound of the screen door slamming when my kids went to the backyard to play. I missed the text I would get from my mom where you could make, you couldn't make heads or tails of what she was saying. Like she didn't really understand how to use the text and she tried to use code with the emoji and it would make me crazy. She'd blow up my phone at work and I would kill for just one more text from her. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's these everyday ordinary moments that, and this is the, this is like, I just even get goosebumps talking about it, that. We steamroll right over those moments, looking for big moments. But yet, when we inevitably experience loss and grief in our lives, it can really be defined by the loss of normalcy. Yep. Yep. You know, God, those moments that I didn't even pay attention to, that put a smile maybe not on my face but on my heart yeah. are gone now and I never stop to count them as meaningful we've all got to take heed of that because we don't do it daily we might try we might do a bit of mindfulness we might go for a walk look at the trees but it's not embedded into our everyday life and it's really moving hearing you talk about that and those um those conversations that you've had with people that have been through incredibly tough stuff. And and it's interesting when looking at pain. Um, I really enjoyed, again, reading how you view it and how 
I don't know if you're communicating with it, it's communicating with you, but is it is it pointing, is it signposting to us where the healing is needed? What is that communication that pain has with us? It's a teacher. You know, it's, and, and let me tell you something, I am not, I am like voted least likely to like embrace pain and say, <laughs> oh, you're here. What can I learn? You know, I'm like, fuck you, get out of here for like, <laughs> For like weeks. And then I'm like, okay, you're not leaving. What do you want, asshole? Yeah. You know, like that's, I'm much more of that approach. Um, but I think starting with this, if you think of pain as energy, it's not going anywhere. And so it's much easier in our culture today to cause pain than to feel pain. So it's so easy. I mean, on this laptop, I could do it right now to anyone I wanted. It's the easiest thing in the world. Oh, God, me too. It's so seductive. And like, and you know, and I wouldn't, I, by the way, I would, but then I would delete it before <laughs> I hit put before I published. But I would, I would, I would, I, I like to do it just because I've honed the craft to the point of excellence. And so, yeah. you know, as a shame researcher, I only need to know you for about 20 minutes to bring you to your knees, really, because I can, I can. Oh, shit. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I can we're in, see. We're on minute 30. <laughs> I can see what makes people vulnerable. I mean, it's what I do for a living. And so, but in this world where everybody puts their vulnerabilities out, we know how to hurt people. And so when we've got pain and we've got this energy in us, it's so much easier to ball it up or fashion it yeah. into a weapon and hurt other people as opposed to, and unfortunately, I mean, Unfortunately, most of us often lash out at the people we love the most, who are the closest, our partners. Sometimes we'll spare our children, but go straight for the partners. Mm. And, you know, it's that, it's that saying that I think is true in many ways. You know, hurting people can hurt people, healed people heal people. Mm. Yeah, that's lovely. You know, there's this great scene from Steel Magnolias where – you know, this character played by um, Sally Fields has just buried her daughter and she's walking and she's raging and she's sobbing and she turns to her friends and, you know, she's like, I just want to hit something. I just want to hit something so hard. I just want to cause pain. I want to hit something. And <laughs> the wonderful Olympia Dukakis grabs this woman that's in the group of people that no one likes, you know, played by Shirley MacLaine, who she's such a asshole in this movie her name her nickname is Weezer and she just kind of grabs her by the shoulders and puts her right in front of Sally Fields and says just hit her just just hit her right in the face you know and I think I think about that scene all the time from Steel Magnolias because I think most of us in our culture find it much easier to be angry than to be sad oh yeah Anger for me is sort of right there. I can tap into it. But I know if I dig around enough, I will get to sadness. And that will probably lead me then to empathy for other people in the dynamic. But I have to, there's a bit of work to be done before I get to that place, for sure. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
there's a term that I wasn't so familiar with in the book, which was personalization. Well, certainly used in this context where if we're in a dynamic and something's gone wrong, that we think, oh my God, it's me. It's all about me. It's me. I've, I've got this wrong. I am flawed. I am wrong. How do we know when it's personalization versus actual accountability where we have messed up and we do need to actually make a change or apologize or whatever the action might be to follow it? Yeah, this is really important because I think, God, this goes to, this goes to the data that we have that when we are, I mean, Atlas of the Heart is constructed very strategically. The front is kind of why, you know, my story about emotion that you mentioned, why just survival for me was understanding how people's thoughts and behaviors and emotions were linked, my parents, the people around us. Um, The middle is an exploration of 87 different emotions and experiences. And then the end is a framework on how we build connection with each other. And I think what's really important is this idea that if we don't have the language for what we're feeling and we're overwhelmed by emotion that we cannot name or articulate, we'll have a very difficult, if not impossible time understanding whether we should be stepping into accountability or normalizing a behavior to your point, because we don't have the language you know, we don't have the language for it. And so if, let me think of an example, because this is such an interesting nuanced question that you ask. So if on that post to 10 million people, I use the term spirit animal, which is absolutely inappropriate, appropriated from indigenous peoples, if I go into shame, which I did, My first response was not like, hey, it's okay, Brene. You're human. You're here to learn and get it right. My first response was, fucking A, Jesus, whose fault is this? Who saw this? Who let this happen? Let me, who can I blame? Like, I'm a blamer. Like, who can I blame? Then my second response was, oh my God, can't say anything anymore. Like, get over it. Jesus Christ, you sensitive ass motherfucker <laughs> I mean like that's this, these are all just I'm being totally honest and I, I'm loving it every second because we've all been there we've all bloody been there we just might not say it out loud yeah so I don't know if you're gonna have to bleep me a lot but that those are my responses no no we don't do bleeping okay great oh yeah you're, you're in the you're British I forget um, y'all yeah. are so much better at this than we are we're so we're far fouler but then apologetic which is gross but um, so then I'm like okay shit, man, I'm blaming, I, I, I am, I'm blaming people, I'm rationalizing. And then I'm hearing myself say, you can't say anything anymore. Everybody's so sensitive. Oh my God. Now I sound like an old white Trump supporter. Like what the shit is happening here? And so in that moment, I'm like, oh God, I'm in shame. I'm in shame. And so I have a rule when I'm in shame, which is don't talk, text or type to anybody. Oh, I lo- I'm having that. Yeah. I'm having that. Yeah. Don't talk, text or type because I'm, I can be mean. You know, we have three, three kind of pattern responses to shame. We know this from the research. This is from research from Wellesley, the Stone Center. Um, they're, they're, we move away by hiding, secret keeping. We move toward by people pleasing or we move against by using shame and anger to fight shame. 
I'm usually a move against her. And so, okay, I'm in shame. Don't talk, text, or type. Don't talk, text, or type. I'm probably going to have to cry before I'm back on my emotional feet, which pisses me off even more. Um, But it's okay. So then I come through the shame and then I'm like, okay, I was able to, because I was able to name what I was in and not respond in a way that moved me out of my values and really did some damage. Now I'm back on my emotional feet. So now I get to choose who I want to be. My crazy ass emotions are not choosing for me. I'm choosing. And that's why having a vocabulary for emotion and experience that's as expansive as our actual emotions and experiences is vitally important because language is a portal. It's our most important portal, actually. Language is a portal to new choices, second chances, and that's what happened for me that day. But I didn't go into some kind of like, um, what should I do? I'm lovely and imperfect. I went into, <laughs> I start, I swing first and ask questions later. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I very much relate to everything you've just said. And there are situations I can even think of now where I guess you need to get humble. You need to get to that place where you're then able to put yourself in a vulnerable space to apologize or whatever ne- is, is needed next. Mm-hmm. It's tough. It's hard, but it's essential. It's essential. And also, like you've just described with, you know, using all of this wonderful language, this lexicon we have now relating to emotion, it's it's liberating, essentially, because like you say, we've, <laughs> we've got more options. We've got more choices. Who do I want to be? How do I want to respond to this rather than, oh, this is so boring. I'm just being angry again because it gets quite tedious. I mean, but think about this. Think about this. So early, probably, I don't know, maybe 10, 11 years ago, as part of a curriculum that we ran, we surveyed over 7,000 people, name, make a list of all of the emotions that you can recognize in yourself as you're feeling them and accurately name. The average number was three. Wow, yeah. Happy, mad, sad. Imagine... I mean, this is this is the example I use in the book. I mean, imagine you, Fern, you've got a pain in your shoulder from playing me in pickleball. We'll say that. You've got a pain in your you got a pain in your shoulder that's so excruciating that when it radiates, it literally takes your breath away. You see stars. And it started small, but now it's basically defining your life. You can't sleep at night. You can't get your cute sweater over your head. You, I mean, and it's all you think about and you just are either in pain or anticipating pain. You finally get an appointment with the orthopedist. You go in and she looks at you and says, hey, friend, what's going on? And the moment you try to tell her, there's duct tape over your mouth and your hands are tied behind your back. And, you, and she says, come on, I need to know where it hurts. Can you not show me where it hurts? I mean, I don't understand. Can you not show me where it hurts? Like, I need you to tell me what's going on. Human nature says that you'll respond in one of two ways. You'll start thrashing about in her office, knocking stuff off shelves and just, just out of rage and desperation. Or you'll just start crying and slump down on the floor. Because you've got a pain that you can't articulate, you can't share, you can't ask for what you need. 
when the human experience of our of our emotions get shoved into happy, sad, or mad, we are that person. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. And I and that that's why this book is a map. It's a map of us going like uh, you know, I had discoveries going, oh, yeah, that's what that is, you know. And, and there were some times I was completely new to, which was so interesting as well. And you mentioned this, by the way, I saw that you're obsessed with pickleball. I've never heard of it, but I'm intrigued by pickleball. It's a ball with holes in and you, it's like tennis. It's like tennis, ping pong and badminton had a baby. Okay. I don't know if that's over here yet, or maybe I'm just, I've been living under a rock and everyone's playing pickleball and I don't know about it, but. I, I'll need you to get it, I, I'll need you to get it started over there right. so that when I come, we can play. We're doing it. Okay. Well, that can be one of my very many missions in life, um, pickleball. <laughs> so you mentioned this a moment ago and it was actually something that I underlined in the book. When you're talking about the importance of connection and, and human connection to alleviate many different emotions that we might feel. And to do that, we need to at first, of course, be connected with ourselves. I think a lot of people listening to this will go, am I connected to myself? Am I, is there a disconnect? Do I know? How do we work that one out if we're not sure if we're connected authentically to ourselves or not? I think the first question is a question of embodiment. Are we connected with our bodies? Yeah. Can we feel what's happening? I mean, they call emotions feelings yeah, because we feel them in the body first. The body is the first indicator light of what's going on. So for me, when something shaming happens, you know, let's go back to the, the Instagram post and I see the very first comment that says, Jesus, Brene, what were you thinking? This is so hurtful. Immediately, I know for me, shame means time slows down. I go into tunnel vision. My mouth gets dry. My armpits tingle. I I start putting things on a loop that I can't get out of. So I think when we talk about connection to self, it's, it's really about self-awareness. Are we connected with our bodies? Do we understand like, hey, something's off or Jesus, I don't, I came out of that, that meeting so it's so here's where it's dangerous the difference between you and I work together and we come out of a meeting and I come out of the meeting and I go god I came out of that meeting really pissed off and then I start searching for what happened in that meeting with me and Fern and our teams that left me so pissed so angry as opposed to I, I came out of that meet hey Fern do you have a second I came out of that meeting like emotionally hooked by something. I don't even know what I'm feeling, but I came out of that meeting. I'm like, I'm, I'm activated around something. I don't know what's going on. And then you and I start having a conversation. And what we realize is what I'm really feeling is disappointment because I've been working really hard on this project. It was on the agenda and we didn't even get to it. Mm. When, when let's talk about disappointment because Hmm. Again, I was super intrigued by this section of the book. And obviously, if we set really high expectations, there is a bigger margin for disappointment. Where is the balance? When should we shoot for the stars versus lower the expectations? So I don't ever like lowering the expectations. And I'll tell you why. It goes back to another gut-wrenching, the interviews that I did. There are so many people... 
And I have to say, this feels very pervasive to me in the UK. There are so many people that choose to live disappointed rather than risk feeling disappointment. Mm. And I'm probably more of a high-low person, so I never knew, I don't do that very often, but I will say that I interviewed a man who was in his late 60s, and this was, I think, was it for Daring Greatly? I don't remember, but I remember him saying that his whole life, he never really, he always watched expectations, so he was never too disappointed, but never got too excited, Whether where his wife would get really excited and then feel great disappointment. And he said they were in a very tragic car wreck and she was killed on impact and they had been married for 40 years. And he said when he came to in the hospital, realized that she had been killed. One of the very first thoughts he had is I wish I would have leaned into those joyful moments more because I haven't been saved an ounce of pain on this day to day. And, you know, and so here's what I would say. I think you can have, it's more work than having, you know, lowering expectations. What we need are expectations that are intentional and reality checked. We don't have to lower them, but we have to say, you know, I, I'm going to get in great shape for my 30 year high school reunion. And when I walk in there, people are going to be like, oh, holy shit. (laughs) right? So is that a high expectation? No, that's just a bad expectation. I'll tell you why. You can't control how other people react. No. You know, you have no control over how people are going to react. So that's just a bad expectation. So what I think is you can have high expectations, but reality check one, are you clear about why that's an expectation? Are you building into your expectation, managing how other people respond? You know, and for, you know, I think, I call them stealth expectations because they're expectations we have not articulated or communicated. I think they're there are the killers of relationships with our partners. Mm. Steve and I have had more painful arguments in our 30 something years together around expectations than probably around anything else. Ditto. I, I I expect my husband to mind read my expectations that I am yet to even communicate with him and I'm still pissed off. I'm still pissed off. I am too. And I mean, I t- tell you the Steve's favorite line that I think about all the time is, hey, I'm happy to be in your movie, but I'll need a script in advance. Yes. Well, guess what? I've got one here for you. There you go. Yeah. I wrote but, it ages I, ago. But, but you know, that's vulnerable because I'll say, you know, I'll say, hey, I'm going to share something with you that happened at work. And I'm really freaked out about it. And I'll need you to respond calmly, but match my level of freaked outness. <laughs> yes. And he'll be like, okay, I, I got it. And then I'll say, here's what happened at work. And he'll be like, shit, that would have freaked me out too. And it's not any, you know, I, let me tell you, can I tell you a quick story? Oh my God, that is, that is me and my husband. It's got me. Tell me, tell me. <laughs> it's terrible. It was like the meanest thing a therapist has ever said. And I've been on the receiving ends of some mean shit. But okay, so so Steve and I, so Steve and I get married. We're newly married. Super stressful. I'm commuting graduate school. He's in his. He's in medical school. We're broke. You know, it's just hard times. And then I wake up our first, my first birthday after our, our wedding, and I come downstairs 
and we're in this little two, like little upstairs, downstairs, tiny apartment. And I look around and there's jack shit. No balloons, no signs. Like, and I grew up in a house where you kind of decorated for the birthday. And I was like, this is it. This is just the uh, one thing in a long list of things. It's not working. And I told my therapist, I said, you know, this is not going to work. And I need to think of a way to, this is before Gwyneth Paltrow had introduced the idea of consciously uncoupled. Mm. But I was like, I need to do whatever the 1990s version of that is. I I need to get out of this marriage. It's not going to work. And she said, did you ask him for what what you wanted? Did you ask him for what you needed? Did you tell him what what a birthday celebration would look like for you? And I said, the word spoken by millions of people every day. If I need to ask you, it's not worth it. And she looked at me and she said, well, maybe if you're afraid to ask him, you don't think you're worth it. Oh, yeah. That is a tough one. I've, I, I know that feeling. That is a tough one. Because then you go, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I don't. I mean, for me personally, I, that's always my conclusion. Oh, I know I don't feel I deserve it. Yes. How embarrassing to say, hey, listen, my birthday's next week. And in my family, this is what we did. And it would mean a whole lot to me if downstairs was decorated and just had a couple <laughs> balloons and made some sign. Oh, my God. I'd rather, I'd rather die and get a divorce <laughs> than, than be that vulnerable about, like, I, like, like I'm, do you see me? This is, this is the forehead rub. And this is like clinicians, therapists will tell you that this is such a towel. This is like a stress towel. <laughs> Um, but can you imagine, uh, hey, Fern, next week's my birthday. And as my friend, it would mean a lot yeah. to me. Just make it amazing and I'll feel fine. <laughs> God, hard, right? Oh, it's so brilliant. It's hard. It's really hard. All of it. Communicating is really hard. Like I'm a communicator for a living and I find it excruciating in my real life. You know, I like doing this. This is... I feel in control. That's probably why. But in everyday situations, even with my family, I find it really hard because it's a vulnerable place to be, to say what you want, to say what you need without then probably going into shame, thinking, am I an asshole for asking for this or that? You know, it's so hard. It's so bloody hard. Um, (laughs) It's bloody hard. Yeah, it's it's vulnerable. It is bloody hard. I mean, there's so many bloody hard things about living in the modern world. You know, one of the things we have to touch on is overwhelm, which who isn't feeling overwhelmed? I'm sure every person listening to this now will go, me, I'm overwhelmed. I feel overwhelmed. And, and you put this quote in the book from John Kabat-Zinn, um, who, who said, sums it up perfectly. It's all unfolding faster than my nervous system and psyche can manage it. That is it. You know, that is how so many of us feel like it's a runaway train. And like we've discussed a lot today, we can't control what's going on out here. The outside world, we cannot control it. So what tools do you have in place for you to manage how you react to that if you are in an overwhelm? So like you, when I was when I was researching the book, I was like, oh my God, I don't I I didn't I didn't know this word existed or I didn't know I think I've been using these wrong. So one of the things I learned about overwhelm and stress, I learned the difference when I was writing this book from the researchers who study these constructs. So stress I make an analogy in the because in, I waited tables for a long time through college and under and graduate school. So stress is like when you're waiting tables, it's like being in the weeds. Like there's a lot of stuff going on. I can manage it, but I'm walking through some th- some thick weeds right now. 
overwhelm is the John Cabot Zen quote. Like, I actually am no longer functioning productively. I, it, it's too much now. Like my over, my, my nervous system is just completely overrun. So before I did this research, I used to say I'm overwhelmed a lot. And this is the thing that just was like, boof, like mind blowing to me around this research. Language does not just communicate emotion. Language shapes and changes what we're feeling. So the best way I can describe this, and this is the neurobiology of emotion research, that neurologists study and psychology people study, is what if you wanted to make some chocolate, homemade chocolate chip cookies for your kids and you got out your bowl, you put your flour and your milk and your everything in, but the bowl that you used change the flavor of the cookie. The bowl was an active ingredient of the cookie. Language is an active ingredient of our emotion. When I say I'm overwhelmed, when I use that language to label it, my neurology, my biology starts to say, shut down, we're done, shut down. When I say I'm stressed, it says, God, the weeds are thick. I'm managing through it, but it's, I, it's, it's becoming tough, but it's manageable. Yeah. So I think one of the things that I have really changed, I mean, there's a, there's a number of things that have radically kind of changed the way I live from the book, but one of them is I'm very careful now about how I use the word overwhelmed. And if I am truly overwhelmed, there's only one neurobiological antidote to it which is nothingness for 10 or 15 minutes. So at work, I'm right now in my podcast studio in Houston. So right now, if I said, shit, I'm overwhelmed. Wait, are you really overwhelmed? Are you just kind of stressed? No, no, no. I'm overwhelmed. As soon as we hung up, I would take off my ear pods and I would go for a walk in the parking lot for 10 or 15 minutes. If I'm stressed, I just keep doing my work, but stay mindful about how much more I can take on before it leads to overwhelm. So, man, I, I, I just, I knew language was important, to be honest with you. I knew, I knew it was a big thing. I did not know it was the bowl that could change mm. the cookie. It's so interesting because almost in, in that example, by using the word overwhelm, <clears throat> you've made a little sacred commitment to yourself that that equals some sort of action and remedy because you're choosing a moment of compassion if you use the word overwhelm. That's Whereas right. if you use the word stress, you can you can carry on. And, you know, I'm a, a huge language lover and, a, and an avid reader and write books myself. And I love the English language more than anything. And I'm nervous to ask you this question. Maybe it's even foolish, but hey, I can be vulnerable in this space because that's what you do. <laughs> and I also like doing the same thing. Yeah. Can you ever overanalyze this stuff or is it always good to dig around in it? I think the answer goes back to, it's like when we were talking about expectations and disappointment. I think it's about self-awareness and intention. I think you can overanalyze anything because I think sometimes the intention of overanalysis is armor. I'm going to study this shit so hard I don't have to do it. 
<laughs> instead of actually feeling pain, I'm going to overanalyze the data on whether this is true or not. And then I'm going to argue with you about the data set and the meta-analysis. You know, like, yeah, I think it depends. I think you can do almost anything as armor. Mm. So it's how you use the information and the knowledge that you have. You can use it for yourself or against yourself, I guess. That's it. I mean, because the thing is, if you're like, well, but the etymology of the word stress. (laughs) And then you're like, you know, shut up. Yeah, you've you've gone down a rabbit hole that has no end. And And you're intellectualizing instead of feeling. Well, this goes back to... What I said at the start, this is why I love what you do, because it's both. And it's not one overriding the other. You you add the humanness, you add the anecdotes, and you tell us how you're feeling with all of this data. And it's so helpful. And, you know, I don't even know how aware you are of how much you are helping people. Like, it's game-changing. I, again, I think when you're in a not a good headspace, which I wasn't a, a long time ago, and I, I read a, a lot of your books during that time. And it was game changing, you know, feeling, especially talking about shame because no one was really doing it in that way, in a really human way. And 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 shifting that. We, none of us need to carry shame yeah. around. No, and that's the kind of myth, isn't it? Because it's so secret. We've all got these secrets in the shadow that we're trying to hide. And none of us need to lug that around. And, and, and that's... That is liberating for people. It's so, I mean, it's liberating for me hugely. And, you know, I still sometimes sink into it with historic situations and new ones. But like you said, the whole point of this book, at least we now have the language to to look at it and to poke around and to understand it and go, okay, I know what I'm doing here. This is what I normally do in this situation. Or, you know, I have a propensity to sink into shame. That's where we're at. And again, liberating. Liberating, liberating. It's a beautiful map that you've created for all of us. And I'm eternally grateful for it. Another brilliant book for my Brené Brown collection that I have on my shelves right here. Yeah. And thank you for your, thank you for also your vulnerable sharing. I mean, I know when I told people that we were doing this, especially my friends who live in the UK, they're like, oh my God, she's such a badass. I mean, for you to be able to be honest about it, we don't really have to live with shame. I mean, and the thing that shame hates is having words wrapped around it. So when we, it can't, shame can't survive being spoken and shared. I had this quite recently when I was, so I still get panic attacks about certain historic things. And one of them used to be driving on the motorway. And I'm luckily I've sort of done enough EMDR therapy that I can do it now. But when I couldn't, I was about to start filming this TV show and the director was like, we're going to go on some A roads, maybe the motorway. And I was like, Ah, like internally. And I went into shame. Like, this is so mortifying. I'm such a freak. Why can't I just be like a regular presenter who comes to do the show? And I just went, hey, I get panic attacks on the motorway. And he went, okay, cool. We don't have to do it. And then we ended up going on a on a A road. And I didn't have one because I'd said it. It was out there. It was in the open. That's it. You know, it's so... It's so amazing, but you just have to get to that place. Maybe it takes therapy or whatever it is to to go. Yeah, I can I can talk about this shit, but I don't. I'll say whatever now. You know, I personally was so bored of pretending to be someone that I wasn't for so many years that I can't be asked. Oh God, it's tedious, isn't it? Yeah, I did it for a long time. Honestly, thank you on a very personal level for the books and the podcast, and I'm 
beyond glad I got to talk to you. To be honest, I could talk for another four or five hours because I had me too. 8,000 questions, but you're extremely busy. <laughs> and I'm just so happy that this moment happened, that we got you on the podcast. Um, you know, a real, a real cool moment for me. So thank you so much. Oh, God, for me too. And I would love to do it anytime. It's so fun. Brené. Oh, I hope you realise I will absolutely be taking you up on the offer to talk any time. Like, does she seriously know what she's gotten herself into there? I'm going to have to DM her immediately. Um, thank you. Thank you for your wisdom and for letting me rabbit on way too quickly at the start of that because I was so, so excited. I loved every second of that conversation. And can I actually say the other thing I love about the conversation? Brené's laugh. Brené Brown has the greatest laugh of any human. It fills me with absolute joy. I need it on loop, just like on my phone or something. Ah, beautiful. I love you, Brené. If you hadn't already noticed, I love you. Brené's new book, Atlas of the Heart, Mapping Meaningful Connections and the Language of Human Experience is out on November the 30th. She goes through 87 emotions and experiences we have as humans. We obviously only had time to scratch the surface of a few of those today, so it's definitely worth getting your hands on a copy of that book. If you loved today's episode, do make sure that you're following Happy Place on your podcast app of choice so you can see who is our guest next week. Until then, thank you again to the wonderful Brené, the wonderful producer of this podcast, Anushka Tate. I have to say that because she sat right next to me at Rethink Audio. And to you beautiful lot for listening, I love you. I will speak to you again soon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.